Amen. If you would take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. What a beautiful way to kick off the message. This past week was tough, um, very tough for many people in our church. On Saturday, we had, there have been a number of funerals over the last few weeks. Uh, but on Saturday, one of our uh, faithful members, Larry Ford, at the age of 70, uh, we had his funeral here, uh, right here in this room. And Larry, uh, many of us knew Larry, many of us loved Larry. He always sat like two or three rows back, right behind our children, and would greet us almost every Sunday. And Larry was just in my home two or three months ago. He uh, was diagnosed with cancer and quickly uh, went home to be with Jesus. And so as I'm sitting in the funeral on Saturday, just in an unusual way, already wrestling through Psalm 73 and thinking about Larry's life, it really uh, impacted me to think that who is here this Sunday who won't be here next Sunday uh, because you'll be with Jesus. And then on Sunday night, uh, one of our friends, uh, one of our friends, uh, he decided to leave his wife and uh, surprised her, shocked her. They'd had some trouble, but out of nowhere decided to leave his wife. And she reached out to us. And on Sunday, uh, we tried to go and meet him at work. I've been trying to reach him all week. He's not returning his calls. Just last night, he returned the first text. And I was thinking about her heart. And we know that no marriage is perfect and no person in a marriage is perfect. But to think about her heart and to think, you know, the suffering that she's going through uh, even today. And then on Monday morning, I went to see one of our longtime members, uh, Giselle Russell, be in prayer for Giselle, um, Bill and Gwen's daughter. Uh, Giselle's cancer is back, and uh, she's not doing well. They've got some decisions to make. Pray for Giselle. But as I'm leaving the hospital, just thinking about it, here's a godly, faithful woman who loves Jesus and serves Jesus. Uh, why would this happen to Giselle? God, why would you let this happen? And then I left the hospital and was going to go pick up my daughter, but I stopped for breakfast first, and I knew I had a little time before I had to pick up Riley from volleyball. So I stopped at IHOP, and I saw one of our, our members, Julie Spence, uh, there at IHOP with her fiancé. And there's Julie's son, Nick, uh, is really wrestling, battling cancer. He had cancer in his leg and just had it amputated a few weeks ago. And, and it just hit me in about a two or three day period, the suffering that's going through our church right now. I know it always does, but it just seems like right now it's just intensified. And so we asked the question, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Maybe you've asked a similar question about something else in life. Maybe you've asked, God, why did you let me be abused as a child? Or why did my mom die at such a young age? Or why can't I get that job? Why is my business going in the red again? Why is the pregnancy test showing up negative again? Why was my child born with a medical condition? Why did my child go astray when I tried to raise them right? How many of you, and I am going to ask for a raise of hands, have ever just at least wondered the why question? Is there anybody here? Okay, two or three of you, good. Yeah, we, we, we're tempted to ask why. And I want you to know you're in good company. Most of the Bible writers also asked why. Remember Jesus' disciple Thomas. What is Thomas's nickname? Doubting Thomas. I mean, forever he's known for asking the why question. The writer of Psalm 73 is a worship pastor. His name is Asaph. You can see it at the top of Psalm 73. And even as a worship pastor, he questioned why. 
And so I want you to know you're in good company today. And in the next few minutes, I want us to dive as deeply as we can into Psalm 73. And let's let God answer the why question. God actually gives us five reasons to the why question. And let's look at them together. Will you stand with me out of respect for the Bible? Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Skip down to verse 16 with me. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Why do bad things happen to good people? Number one, they reveal the disconnect between what we know and what we truly believe. Bad things reveal the disconnect between what we know and what we truly believe. Look with me at verse one. Asaph, this worship pastor for King David says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Verse 1, Asaph starts by declaring good theology. What he says is absolutely true. The word good means uh, he's a covenant friend. God is friendly to Israel. He is a covenant friend to believers. And then he defines what he means by Israel in the last half of verse 1. He says specifically to those who are pure in heart. Not everybody who was a Jew, not everybody who was in Israel in that time was a true believer. And so God says, I am good to true believers. I have a covenant relationship with them. And then Asaph uses the word heart in verse 1. He'll actually use that six times throughout Psalm 73. And Asaph is very attuned to the fact that it's more than just knowledge in the head, but it's also knowledge in the heart. It's belief. It's faith. Verse 2, he says, For as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So verse 1 and 2 is kind of a, it's, it's a comparison, it's a contrast, a juxtaposition. He is saying, I know that God is good in my head, but I just want to write and I want to pray and I want to confess I'm really having a hard time believing it in my heart. Those expressions, my feet had slipped, uh, that's a Jewish expression for I had almost lost my faith. I mean, this isn't just some kind of a third or fourth or fifth string leader in Israel. This is the worship pastor for King David who's confessing the fact that he almost lost his faith. He says, I've got it in the head. I know that God is good, but I'm struggling believing it in my heart. Head knowledge isn't a bad thing. Matter of fact, head knowledge is important in the way we raise our children. We, we catechize our children. We teach our children through Awana. They memorize scriptures. Do the children who memorize God's word at, at Bible Center School or this morning right now in base camp, do we expect them to fully comprehend everything they're feeling in their minds? Absolutely not. But what we're hoping is as they grow in the Lord, they'll eventually be able to recall what they've learned in their mind and apply it to their heart. There's some very simplistic, there's simplistic answers for why bad things happen. There's several things. We, we could simply cite the fact that we live in a sinful world. 
Sin broke the world. God created the world, but sin broke the world. That's often the the best answer to start with when somebody says, why do bad things happen? We live in a broken world. God didn't intend for the world to, to be like it is, but through Adam and Eve's sin and through our sin, the world has broken. And it's not that anytime we're the victim of a, of a tragedy, it's not that as though we've committed some personal sin to deserve the hurricane. It's just that the world is a broken place to live. There's other things. The fact that Satan is alive and well, that's a, that's a truth that we confess. Satan is real. Uh, We believe that Jesus came to save the world, but ultimately it won't totally be restored until the end of time, and he's going to make all things new. Again, that's that's a doctrine, that's theology that we believe. But you see, something happens when we go through suffering, our theology is tested. We begin to realize, okay, I've always been taught this, I always have nodded my head to this, but do I really believe it in my heart? And suffering has a way by the grace of God to take that seed and hopefully to plant it deeper into our lives. So it's more than just head knowledge, but it becomes true heart knowledge. Why do bad things happen to good people? There's a second reason here in Psalm 73 because it reminds us that there's more to life than meets the eye. There's more to life than meets the eye. Verse 3, he says, I envied the arrogant... When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now Asaph is just telling us what's going on. He, he's envying the wicked in their homes and their cars and their clothes and their jewelry and their vacations and their colleges and their wives. And he says, I envy their prosperity. If you're taking notes, the word prosperity is the word shalom. It, it means inner peace or wholeness or flourishing. If you've been in the church for a long time, that should trouble you a bit because Psalm 1 says that shalom, peace, is reserved for those who follow God. And the wicked aren't supposed to have any shalom. But Psalm 73 is one of those wisdom psalms. He's simply observing that on the outside, the appearance of life is that wicked people are experiencing this peace. And he's mad about it. Not only should they not have it, but he should have it. He doesn't have it, and they have it. In verse 4, he says they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. There's no fetters. There's no hindrances. Now, is this true, or is this just just his perception? Probably, Probably mostly his perception. There's nobody in the world that doesn't have any trouble, but he's hurting, and from, what, from his vantage point, these people are healthy and strong. They have plenty of money to spend on health care. They have plenty of money to spend on rest and recreation and, and to spend on personal revitalization. And it really bothers him, and he is envious. I wonder this morning, who do you envy? Who is it that you are mad that they're blessed in a particular way and you're not? Maybe there's somebody at work and they're a lazy bum, but yet they keep getting promoted and they keep getting the raises. And for some reason you work your tail off and nobody's giving you a promotion or a raise and it bothers you. Maybe your friend is having baby number 10 and it seems like every eight months there's a new baby and and you, you can't have a baby yet and it bothers you. 
Maybe there's a slumball who landed that girl that you had hoped to, to marry one day and you have no idea how he got that girl and you didn't get that girl and it bothers you. Or maybe your friend just bought that new boat or that new motorcycle or that new jet ski and, and you're lucky to buy a bike and a raft and, and your neighbor just remodeled their house for the 30th time and you're thinking to yourself, how do they keep doing that? Why can't I do, I deserve better. In verse 5, he says, these wicked people are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Notice verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. They're always free of care, and they go on amassing wealth. Asaph isn't saying that people who have wealth are sinful. Asaph is saying that it bothers him that a particular group of people that he knows are wealthy, but yet he knows they're wicked. It's as if he's saying, they're wicked and I'm righteous. I cheat on my taxes, I go to jail. They cheat on their taxes, they get elected to public office. And it, it, it really bothers him. And so he says in verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. If you're taking notes, you want to draw a line or a connection between verse 2 and verse 18. In verse 2, he says that he thought he was on slippery ground and he thought they were stable. But here in verse 18, he says, I see it. I'm actually stable, even though I don't feel stable. And the wicked, they're the ones who are actually on slippery ground. In verse 20, he says this about the wicked. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Those who are far from you will perish, verse 27. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. The word fantasies means images or statues or idols. Essentially, it'd be like today in our world saying that the wicked, they might seem like they're powerful now, but one day all that's going to be left of them is a statue. One day all that's going to be left of them is a poster or a website, but they themselves will not flourish forever because they're on their way to an eternity without God. And so when he begins to realize this, God shows him that there's more to life than meets the eye. Eternity restores the balance. Death is the great leveler. The rich without God are on their way to being eternally poor. Celebrities without God are on their way to being eternally ignored. For the unbeliever, think of this, for the unbeliever, the pleasures of this life are as close to heaven as they are ever going to get. But for the believer, the suffering of life is the closest to hell that you are ever going to get. When you think about that, it turns the world up on its end. I was thinking the other day about the, the Miss, it even sounds funny to say, the Miss Universe pageant. Not that I watched it, right? I wasn't watching the Miss Universe pageant, but it was all over Facebook. You remember back in 2015 what Steve Harvey did? Fellow West Virginian, so we'll forgive him, right? But he crowned the wrong Miss Universe. And so in 2015, he, he crowned, I believe it was Miss Columbia, but he should have crowned Miss Philippines. And so this picture, the USA Today picture, was my favorite one. The look 
on Steve Harvey's assistant is priceless. I mean, she just looks, and even the ladies, they look stunned. Now, I'll ask you, again, so from your vantage point, the one on the left is the one that got crowned first, but the one on the right was the true winner. Which one would you rather be? Would you rather be the one on the left, Miss Columbia, or Miss Philippines? Of course you say, Pastor Matt, we would definitely want to be the one on the right. Why do we want to be the one on the right? Because the one on the left got crowned first, but her crown didn't last. Her crown faded away. We want to be the one who's crowned for good. Then why in the world in life do we claw and scrape and complain when we are not the one on the left? When it looks like God's given his blessing to everybody else and it looks like the way to win in the world is to sin and to lie and to cheat and to steal and something within us begins to groan and say, you should cheat, you should steal, you should lie if you want to make your way to the top. And this text calls to us from the Holy Spirit of God and God says, just wait, the crowning isn't over yet. There is a future day coming when all will be made right. And what we see on the surface, there's more than meets the eye. Why do bad things happen? Number three, because they expose the pride in our own hearts. Bad things expose the pride. It doesn't mean that every time something bad happens that we're in sin, uh, overt sin, but it just reminds us. Suffering has a way of reminding us that we're We're not as perfect or even as good as we think we are. Notice verse 6. He's pointing still at the wicked. He says their pride is their necklace. If you're taking notes, you want to write Genesis 41-42. In Genesis 41-42, it's where Pharaoh put the necklace around Joseph's neck. It was a sign of honor. And so this image, he says their pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. The word violence uh, means oppression. They disdain others. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. We all would say amen to that. Man, these people are really, really bad. But notice what he does in verse 21. He switches And in verse 21, he stops looking out here and he starts looking in here. He says, my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Asaph, in the process of wrestling with God in prayer, learned that he wasn't as good as he thought he was. The question that Asaph begins to ask in his heart, instead of saying, God, why do bad things happen to me? You can kind of sense it starts to turn and he's beginning to ask, why does good things, why do good things happen to me? I know who I am in the dark when nobody else is around. God, thank you for showing mercy to me. There's this philosophy in West Virginia that right living earns you blessing. There's a lot of reasons for it. There's what we call the prosperity gospel that teaches this. It's still on TV. You know, it's those guys that tell you if you send them, you know, $10,000, you'll make a million dollars in the next month. And I always kind of always wonder what they do with the, God, with the book of Job and, and other passages of scripture. But even right down to the basis level, I've been hunting with guys before that talked about the blessing of right living. Because they're right living, God lets them kill a big buck. And when I was a kid, I would always think like, well, 
you're not as good as you think you are. And, and I, I would also think, uh, uh, you know, what about the people who aren't believers? They kill big bucks too. So right living doesn't necessarily guarantee you this great blessing of life and prosperity and career. But 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul asks the question, what do you have that you didn't receive and why do you boast as if you had not received it? So psalmist begins to see himself. He calls himself a brute beast. He realizes, you know, he's not as smart as he thinks he is. Suffering has a way of reminding us that we need the Lord and we're not all we think we are. I remember a few years ago, actually like 10, 8 years ago, Riley was 4, she's 12 now. We were at CAMC. I had to get my blood taken. You know, you go there to the lab and they take three or four gallons of blood or however much they take. And uh, I was sitting in that torture chair and, and they strap you in and they started doing the blood draw. And, and I've never had this happen before and it hasn't happened since. Um, but I hadn't eaten that day and I was supposed to come in like at 8 a.m. But I just got busy and so it was like 1 p.m. And so I was hungry, didn't have anything to eat. And I sit there and again, they put the ice pick, you know, in your arm and and, and I don't know what happened. Everything just went purple. Not like black. People say it went black. No, it went purple. Like it went purple. It started getting fuzzy. And I don't remember anything else until I woke up. And I don't know how long had passed. I forget. It's been eight years ago. But I look out through the lobby and one of the phlebotomists is playing with Riley with some coloring books. And she's sitting there kind of looking at dad to make sure dad's okay. And, and the, the nurses are being so nice. Those of you who are nurses, you're so nice. But we know. We know you make fun of us when we leave. And, and, and she's just fanning me and giving me some orange juice. And, and, and so I get up and, you know, I muster up enough strength to go back to the car. And I hold Riley's hand. And we're walking out. Again, she's only four and I'm expecting a little sympathy from my four-year-old and, and she said I thought she was going to say dad I hope you're okay daddy I love you that's not what she said she said dad you so embarrass me <laughs> as as tough as we think we are suffering reminds us that we're we're really not Elizabeth Elliot, on this particular passage about the brute beast, she tells the story of the, the, the highlands of Wales and, and how the shepherds actually once a year take the sheep and they dip them in a vat of insecticides. And the sheep don't like it. They don't like it at all because the shepherd has to hold them under for a few seconds and the sheep kick and they squirm and they scream. But the shepherds know this is best for the sheep. And in this passage, God is declaring to us, our shepherd knows what is best for the sheep. And I stand before you today as a young 38-year-old pastor who hasn't had very much suffering in my life. And over the decades to come, I am going to need you. I know that my perfect little life in suburbia with very little suffering and very little problems one day is going to come to an end. I don't know what's going to happen. But my wife and I know it's just the way life is. And I'm going to need you to remind me of Psalm 73 that Matt the shepherd knows what is best. Why do bad things happen? We don't always understand. But we know he is a shepherd, and he humbles us and draws us into greater dependence upon him. Number four, why do bad things happen? Because it teaches us, they teach us that God is sovereign and Jesus is enough. 
God is sovereign and Jesus is enough. Notice verse 8. Asaph says of the wicked, they scoff and they speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Verse 11. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? In other words, is God really all-knowing? I mean, really? They ask, is God really everywhere present? Is God really sovereign? To be sovereign means to possess supreme or ultimate power. But as Asaph prayed and meditated on God's truth, this is what he says in verse 23. In verse 23, he tells God, I am always with you. There's a little word yet before verse 23. That's a strong word. He is saying, but in spite of everything I might have thought before, in spite of everything the wicked says, yet, but I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me to glory. The word guide and the word counsel are words of sovereignty. They're words that a king would use. He, he is saying, God, you and your, your kingliness, I trust you. I don't trace you. I don't understand you, but I, but I trust you to guide the affairs of my life. If you're taking notes, you want to write down Psalm 103, 19. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. Romans 11, 33 through 36, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given to God that God should repay them? Or from him and to him and through him, God are all things. You want to write down Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11. God's even in charge of the bad things. After the service, please don't ask me to explain it because I don't get it. But Exodus 4.11 says, the Lord says, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? It's not just that the devil does these things, but God in his sovereignty allows these things. Exodus 14.7, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And his Egypt, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Job 1.21, a famous verse. Job 1.21, Job said, naked came I from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It didn't say the devil gave and the devil took away. He said God gave and God took away. And then Proverbs 16, 4 is the last. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord made everything for a purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now, when we think about this idea of sovereignty, does that mean that God is a mean, cold, calculated dictator? I mean, is he like King Leopold of the 1800s from Belgium? Is, is he just marching in and doing whatever he wants without any love or any care or any compassion? Sometimes that's the way we feel. Those of us that have been in church for a long time, we, we know that God is in control. And sometimes it can feel as though, yes, he's in control, but he surely doesn't care. 
But verse 23 refutes that. In verse 23, the psalmist Asaph, he says, but yet I was always with you and you held me by your right hand. Just as we saw some of these mothers holding their babies, that's the word here. A great illustration on, on Sunday morning. That's the word. God holds us. It's not like God is just holding us. He is holding us in his right arm, in his right hand. It is a, it's a picture of love. If you're ever tempted to believe a doctrine of sovereignty that is not doused with the love of God, then you are believing heresy. Because God loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. And if you're a follower of Jesus, yes, God knows what's best, but God's holding you the entire way. One of the first books I ever read was Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anybody read Fox's Book of Martyrs? It is a great book. Warning, if you read it, it's short, little paperback. I think it's like a couple bucks now. But you won't be the same. In that book, they tell story after story of people who've been martyred, killed for their faith over the years. And one story as a 13-year-old boy really struck out, stuck out to me. The story was about a man who was sentenced to death by being burned at the stake. The fire was lit. It started to consume him. But the governor sent a proclamation that he could, be, he could go free, sent a pardon. And so they rushed in and they put out the fire. And by this point, he was nearly unconscious. He was burned all over his body, but he lived. And when he finally came to, they asked him how he had such peace while he was chained to the post. How could you sing and pray with such confidence while you were chained to the post? And I'll never forget, I mean, this is just a dude just taking writings right out of the pages of history, people's testimonies. And they said that the man who was at the stake told them this, didn't you see the person in the fire with me? Who was that in the fire with me? And he talked about him taking a cold rag and dousing his face and putting moisture to his lips. Didn't you see him in the fire with me? And they thought he was delirious. There's nobody in the fire with you. And he insisted to the day he died, he was not alone in the fire. Now I will insist until the day you die, you will not be alone in the fire. God is with you. He loves you. Yes, he's in charge, but he loves you. And that's why the psalmist said in verses 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing that I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart forever. Why do bad things happen? Number five, and lastly, Bad things drive us to bring our deepest, darkest doubts to God in prayer. This is actually the crux of Psalm 73. This is the whole reason God gave us Psalm 73, to drive us to our deepest, darkest doubts, to bring those to him in prayer. Notice how transparent Asaph gets at this low point in his life. Verse 13, he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted. And every morning, it brings new punishments. You ever meet a, a new Christian or maybe even a young Christian who hasn't lived much life and they just think they know the answer to everything? 
You, you ever met anybody like that? I'm not going to ask how many of us have been that guy or that girl, but it's just kind of the nature of being young in the faith. But whenever affliction sets in, doubts set in, and that's on purpose. Verse 15, he says, I had spoken out like that. If I had spoken, I would have betrayed your children. In other words, if I had gone into the, the worship service and as the worship pastor, Asaph, or me as the senior pastor, if I got up and told you every deep, dark thought that I have during the week, we'd clear the place out. You, you, but I think probably if you got up here and told your deepest, deepest darkest thoughts, you might also do the same thing. But in verse 16, he says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their destiny. The sanctuary was the tabernacle. The temple hadn't yet been built. It was the ta tabernacle. It was a big tent where they came for prayer. And the whole point of coming to the sanctuary, Jesus says, my house will not be a den of thieves but my house will be called a house of what? Prayer. What Asaph is saying is this. I struggled with life. I asked the why question a lot. God, why did you let this happen? But when I've brought those concerns and those burdens and those doubts and those fears and those prayers to you, God, over time, you help me make sense of the world. He never says that God fixed his world, but God helped him make sense of the world. And here's what I want to encourage you to do this week, to take your deepest, darkest doubts to God in prayer and watch and see if the Lord doesn't start to help you make sense of your world. How long has it been since you didn't just read your Bible and check the box but you actually prayed and you told God what stinks with your life. You say, man, I'm just not sure if God can, I'm not sure if God can handle what I really, really think. He already is handling it. He hears you and sees you in your innermost thoughts. Give those things to God. Here's really the main point of Psalm 73. Honesty is always the best policy, especially in prayer. Honesty is always the best policy, especially in prayer. This week, I encourage you, take Psalm 73 or another psalm and tell God everything you've been wanting to tell him and watch what begins to happen in your life. Imagine the freedom it will give you. It won't fix you. It won't fix your struggle. But imagine the freedom it will give you. Imagine the confidence it will give you actually the Psalms will teach us as we go through the next 10 weeks, it will mature us and deepen us in the faith. Instead of being like little children, we'll be grown in the faith because we have a mature relationship with the Lord. From time to time, somebody will ask, Pastor Matt, is it okay for me to ask God why? Is it okay for us to ask God why? I know Asaph did, and I know Job kind of did, but why is it okay for me to ask God why? In answer to that question, I always go back about 2,000 years to a place called Calvary. And it was the hill where Jesus was crucified, raised up on a cross, and where he died. Jesus said a number of things when he was on the cross, but one particular prayer that Jesus prayed, you remember it, you've heard it. He said, my God, my God, 
What was the next word? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus modeled what it was to look like to have such honesty and transparency with God. If Jesus can ask God why, you can ask God why. Because honesty is always the best policy in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for psalms like Psalm 73. I pray that you will take us from JV to varsity in our faith. Help us to talk to you like we really want to. And Lord, as a pastor, save me from Christianese, save me from Christian words because I think it makes you like me more. But help me to pray my deepest, darkest burdens to you in prayer. Lord, I pray for our people. This would be a summer of prayer as we go through the Psalms together. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.